Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh on and the impacts these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. Uh, we are excited to be back in 2022. A happy new year to all of our listeners, and we're happy to have you with us. Before we get started, if you uh, are loving this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and share this episode. All right, let's get started. Our guest today, we are excited to have her on. She is a cannabis industry entrepreneur, having launched the financial news website, Green Market Report, in September of 2017, and where she continues to serve as executive editor. She is in high demand to present at conferences, so you may have seen her speaking or moderating a panel, as I did recently in Washington, D.C., um, and she currently sits on the board of the Cannabis Newswire Access Wire and also is a co-founder of the Cannabis Executive Women's Networking Group, Industry Power Women. Please welcome Deborah Borchardt. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And as always, I am pleased to welcome back the leader of our amazing research team, uh, Chief Knowledge Officer here at New Frontier Data. Please welcome back Mr. John Kagia. Delighted to be back, Heather. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Deborah, we are thrilled to have you on. And um, just looking over your LinkedIn profile, I mean, you've had quite the career path going back to, you know, time in the finance industry with Bear Stearns and then reporter producer at the street. You're a contributor for Forbes. Um, we want to hear a bit more about what made you take your expertise to cannabis in 2017. Why then? What, what, what was going on? Well, I actually started following uh, and reporting on cannabis back in 2013 when I was at the street, um, but that mainstream media back then really uh, saw no value in reporting on cannabis companies. Um, there was really just penny stocks back then, and most of them were actually fairly shady uh, endeavors. Most of them would just put the word cannabis or marijuana, not even cannabis, because back then it was just marijuana in the title of the company. And then sell a bunch of shares and have literally nothing to do with, with cannabis whatsoever. Um, so for me as a reporter, this was a pretty fascinating stuff because there was a lot of movement in these stocks. Um, there was a lot of, uh, like I said, a lot of shadiness going on. So um, as a reporter, it was great stuff, but mainstream media really did not want to cover cannabis back then. And um, at a certain point, I ended up leaving the street and freelancing because I really felt like um, I wanted to spend all my time covering uh, cannabis, not just doing it at the end of the day when all my other work was done. And so I was writing at uh, various outlets like Seeking Alpha and, and Forbes and such, but I wasn't able to write the way I wanted to write um, these these were either stock jocks or very uh, 50,000 foot level type writing. So that's why I started uh, Green Market Report in 2017, because I just wasn't finding the kind of cannabis journalism that I wanted to see. And so I created it. That's amazing. <laughs> did you have, I mean, did you have like people clamoring to join that? I could, I, I mean, being a, re a reporter and a journalist, I feel like that would be such an interesting new industry to report on that to have actually serious journalism going into it. Yeah. You know, the thing that um, we really felt like we stayed true to our mission, you know, that was what I chose to do was take a fairly narrow approach to cannabis coverage. Uh, most of the cannabis media at that time was pretty uh, focused on lifestyle 
culture topics. Um, if you did have business writing about cannabis, um, it was often not very analytical. Um, there wasn't a lot of value add. You saw a lot of just rehashing of press releases rather than saying, oh, here's a press release, but here's what it really means. Um, so I felt like by carving out this piece of reporting, we made ourselves something unique. And that's held true. And 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 even though there were often temptations to go beyond that, I felt that it was most important to just kind of stay true to that very narrow focus. And I really think, you know, overall in media, you're starting to see more of that uh, push within media is to go for these narrow silos of very targeted audiences such that if you cover a topic, you're covering a real specific part of that topic. And so you've got a real sticky, loyal audience. Yeah, right. So true. Um, John, before we move on, any any hot questions for Deborah while she's in the hot seat? <laughs> Well, no, you know, I've just really kind of respected the the way that the role that Deborah has played in shifting the way the media covers this space. Um, you know, the, the uh, as she said, it, it, it was such a um, one size fits all kind of approach, and and tended to be very soft. Um, and so to to see that kind of carefully considered Wall Street kind of perspective coming into into the market, where um, yeah, I think it leveled up, and and that was almost like the advent of this diffusion that we've seen of specialization, uh, much much sharper and tighter reporting. And I think that served the industry really well. Um, I think it's made it a space that now begins to feel a lot more like a lot of other spaces where uh, investors and other stakeholders are playing in, because you can find your niche uh, and and drill in deep. So. And big fan of Deborah's work, right, John? And and I think too, um, what was happening was you had some uh, outlets covering cannabis stocks, um, but they weren't really not. They didn't want to say anything negative. They they That's wanted right. it to be all just rainbows and unicorns. And we love cannabis so much that we're going to just love all the cannabis stocks, no matter whether they're run badly or not. And that was just not great for the investors because the investors, right. if they went to, to some places would see all this wonderful stuff about a company and then not knowing what was really going on um, within the company. And so, you know, that was where Green Market Report stepped in was we were willing to, you know, uncover the warts and discuss the, uh, you know, the, the, the challenges that some of these companies were facing. And while sometimes the companies got upset with that, you know, I would always remind them, look, you know, when you do well, I'm going to point out that you've done well. And so there's going to be a lot more credibility to that article of you've done well versus you getting mad of me saying, wow, you really stumbled this quarter. Um, you need to get, you know, things, things need to be um, pulled together and you're spending too much, your debt's too high, whatever. Um, you know, they shouldn't be afraid of me. <laughs> they should just be focused on what they're doing. <laughs> so, so in that line, Deborah, I'm, I'm curious in, on your perspective of with this idea of both the truth telling and calling the industry's baby ugly when it's warranted. Um, what's, what's your outlook for, for the state of kind of media in this space moving forward? You know, I think we're going to start to see more of the mainstream operators get involved. Um, 
we just got acquired by Crane Communications just uh, really a, a few months ago in October. Um, and I think that's indicative of what we're seeing. Um, and I think because you're starting to see more of the mainstream media seeing dispensaries open up in their states, seeing these huge sales numbers and, and tax revenues, and, and as it just continues to grow and expand, it's less threatening and less stigmatized. So I would expect you're going to start to see more uh, reporters having cannabis as a beat. Right now, I mean, John, you, you and I could probably name all the cannabis reporters that do this full time. And I would say it's probably less than 10 um, of us that, and, and really truly business cannabis reporters that do this as a beat. Um, you know, there, there's quite a few that do it part-time. There's quite a few do it freelancing or just culturally and lifestyle type of stuff. Uh, but as far as business, it's just a very small group of us. Right. Well, thank you for that. All right. Well, we are going to move on. Um, WIFR.com reports there's no plateau in sight for skyrocketing Illinois cannabis sales. So this pandemic has created a ton of challenges for many businesses, but cannabis continues to prove resistant to negative market forces. And Illinois has set another sales record in December by bringing in nearly $1.4 billion in sales in 2021. So Deborah, it has, we all remember when cannabis businesses were declared essential and allowed to stay open while other businesses were forced to shutter their doors. How do you think the pandemic has changed the way retailers engage with consumers? So the pandemic for just regular consumers, most consumers were able to switch their consumption to an online model. Um, as you know, everybody is buying from Amazon and, and things like that. But with cannabis, uh, you're still going to a brick and mortar store. You might make a purchase online, but you're still picking it up at the store or it's being delivered directly to you from that outlet. There's there's no middleman. It's, it's just yeah. that direct relationship. Um, and I think that um, as we see these markets continue to expand, um, you know, that the, the pandemic really didn't change too much with regards to these outlets other than processing the purchases. So, and I think that that, and we'll probably get into this later, but I think that that model, the online purchasing and the pickup in the store I think that that might start to get affected by the whole banking issue and the memo that we got um, from Visa not long ago, a few weeks ago, everybody was talking about that. Um, I think that that's really gonna have the most effect on, on this situation. Up until this point during the pandemic, as these cannabis companies were using um, programs like Dutchie um, to process these online orders so then people could just walk in the store and pick up their little bag, um, I think that that's going to find itself in a lot of, I don't want to say hot water, but a lot of challenges because it sounds like that cashless um, ATM transaction is being targeted by Visa. And so while during the pandemic, it was kind of overlooked, I think mm -hmm. that now as we start to roll out of the pandemic, that is not going to be overlooked anymore. So I think that the cannabis companies kind of got relaxed into this type of transaction. And I think they're going to find out that 
they're going to have to pivot now out of the pandemic and address that situation and how they can do those transactions. But yes, Illinois has been crushing it along with Michigan. That that whole those, those two Midwestern states have just really, you know, gone crazy. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of cannabis businesses figured once once all these changes have been made, you can't put that you know that the, that genie back in the bottle, right? So uh, that's the- what they think. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised, but yes, I think everybody's gotten complacent and um, comfortable with the cashless ATM transaction. As have the I'm, consumers, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, I just I just <laughs> was at a this a dispensary on. Saturday in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and 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 I like to go into dis- different dispensaries and talk to people and stuff. And and sure enough, I you know, and I I'm polite. I make a purchase, and sure enough, it was the cashless ATM. And the whole time I'm doing it, I'm thinking, I know this is not allowed, <laughs> and I'm doing it anyway. And I'm and I'm knowing, I know it's not allowed, and but everyone's doing it. I think, and everyone's doing it until they're not going to be able to do it. Right. John, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I see a lot of potential here for the law of unintended consequences, Um, partly because the the cashless ATM model has been used, has been adopted so widely um, and with a lot of consumers who've now gotten very comfortable with being kind of being able to place um, orders online, whether that's for the delivery to the home or or for in-store pickup or curbside pickup. Um, the, The... potential catalytic effect of Visa bringing the hammer down on the industry is that it now kind of lays bare uh, a really um, easily understood challenge that this industry is facing due to the the lack of coherent federal policy around this. So, you know, this is an industry that is is, uh, generating revenue hand over fist now. And particularly as you see the activation of these East Coast markets that are going to be dynamic, but in kind of centers of power, mm-hmm. um, the idea that, you know, the, the cashless ATM option, which does help expedite and streamline uh, business operations, if, if that now goes away, we go back to a cash-based model at a time that the industry is, is seeing, you know, year-over-year increases in sales uh, to the tune of like four or five billion dollars a year, um, the, there's going to be a very strong case to be made about the urgency for the federal government to address this. Now, it creates a tension between does the federal uh, government try and address this whole cloth, you know, finally get to decriminalization and, and a robust federal policy, or does it create a carve-out exception just to address the banking, finance, and, and, and taxation issues? Uh, but either way, I think um, this just becomes now another point of pressure that um, uh, stimulates the discussion at the federal level about the unsustainability of the constraints being placed on an industry that is growing explosively. The cannabis industry is also phenomenally in- entrepreneurial and innovative. So, you know, they, they, you know, this is an industry that has found workarounds to the constraints around it. Um, for years, and and I certainly don't put it past uh, this industry to to uh, find a creative solution if, if you know, cashless ATMs go, goes away um, until this gets resolved. So I'm I'm curious to see what what else might come down the pike as as a viable alternative if this current option goes away. And and that seems to be happening already. Um, there are already several companies that, like you said, John, see this as an opportunity. To create a product, um, I'm hearing of groups that are getting together to have basically a a credit card 
that is used within their own um, system. So it isn't even going into the Visa MasterCard platform. Um, so that, you know, certainly it, I think is going to create lots of opportunity. And as we've seen, and within the cannabis industry, some of the stuff that gets created within the cannabis industry sometimes gets, you know, expanded into other more mainstream businesses. So, so it's certainly, I think it's, you know, it, it will be disruptive without a doubt, um, but it also gives an opportunity for some other upstarts. Exactly right. Right. Well, I mean, it seems like we are going into another year of this pandemic. Um, so with this strong performance of Illinois and Michigan, like you said, wh what do you expect for 2022? You know, if, if New Jersey starts their sales, and a lot of people I've talked to have said that they could start sales as soon as this summer. Um, which Gosh, Ocean City, New Jersey, and I mean, the, some, the medical operators are already applying for the licenses. And I mean, when you've already got the stores up and running and they've been running fairly smoothly, that's what I've heard is that it's very possible that if they get some of this stuff fast tracked, those outlets could start selling sometime this summer. I think if that happens, it's so game changing because I, I, I think it's definitely going to affect Pennsylvania, which has been another one of those up and coming states. Um, Pennsylvania is medical only, but they've been they have been opening stores right and left or, or medical dispensaries right left, constantly opening new outlets. I think that's going to hurt the Pennsylvania market. I think it's going to push the Pennsylvania market to move a little faster. Um, I'm curious whether it will draw some of those sales from Massachusetts, because right now Massachusetts is getting a lot of business from New Yorkers um, and uh, Connecticut. So, oh, yeah. you know, right now I have to drive two hours to get to a dispensary in Massachusetts. Well, New Jersey is really just, you know, a half hour away from me. So I might, you know, be, you know, shift my dollars over there. And I'm sure I'm not the only other person that could say, wow, it's just a whole lot easier for me to go to Jersey. Um, and I think that that New Jersey market, um, there was, I think it was Headset that, that put out a report um, last week or earlier this week that was saying New Jersey is going to be, you know, one of the top five markets in the country. And I think that that could be true. So I think that um, we could see that. I think we're also going to see a lot of upheaval in California. California is a hot mess. I was just out there last month for the NCIA conference. I had so many people in my ear telling me how awful things are out there. I think I just saw something from the governor, Gavin Newsom, who said, I'm going to address the tax issue in cannabis in California. And a lot of people are very uh, skeptical that he's actually going to do something. But it is such a mess, and uh, the illegal market there is is growing and getting even stronger than it was before. So I think I think something's going to need to happen in California. Um, I think it's just going to get harder for the legitimate players to compete against the not so legitimate players. Right, and and I don't even want to get into the whole legacy and all that stuff, all that comp that that whole conversation about legacy stuff, because the people I'm talking about are not the mom and pop farmer that was in Humboldt 40 years ago. I'm talking about people that are brand new that are just piling on to the illegal market, um, and they're just enjoying running a business without paying any taxes. Yeah. 
Well, John, I know our team has done a lot of outlook on, you know, the Jersey market. Um, what, what do you, what's your opinion on that? So I actually shared um, Deborah's view in that the the, cat, the regional can of tourism that New Jersey is going to draw, uh, enjoy when that switch flips um, mm -hmm. is going to be both um, very dramatic, we expect, and and lead a lot more of these East Coast markets that are literally watching their, their consumers drive over the border um, or drive over several borders <laughs> to get to Jersey. Um, you know, the 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 I think it's going to influence the speed at which the conversation happens in New York. Um, I think it's going to um, influence kind of that entire Eastern seaboard, the mid-Atlantic uh, region, where the conversation has been relatively slow and moving. Uh, but for example, I'm curious to see how this tension builds between the Jersey Shore and Ocean City, Maryland, um, as you know, for, for those who are looking for an East Coast uh, summer holiday. Um, I think this makes you know the Jersey Shore look like a much more attractive destination for a certain type of a uh, certain type of both tourist and consumer. Um, the the there's a couple of other things around the East Coast dynamics that I think are, are compelling. Uh, Pennsylvania's medical market has been growing like gangbusters, um, and you know it, it based on the set of qualifying conditions that it has, that it's broad, ex expansive, and uh, relatively easy to participate. Um, there's a, we think there's there's a um, at least a proportion of participants in the medical cannabis program in Pennsylvania that are using the program for affirmative defense. However, it's a really expensive program to participate in. So if you can drive across the border to go to New Jersey to get uh, what will likely be more affordable cannabis and then be able to consume it without being molested by law enforcement uh, back in Pennsylvania, um, I think that becomes a big attractor of, of uh, tourism across the Pennsylvania border. Um, and that, that's going to have an impact on, on pushing, we think, the Pennsylvania industry to champion uh, legalization in a way that, that um, has been a slow burn uh, uh, thus far. Um, I am curious to see what happens when we start seeing recreational dispensaries opening in Virginia, and particularly the impact that that has on the national conversation, just because, you know, uh, as we're speaking just before this, DC is right on the border of Virginia. Congress is literally within eyeshot of, um, of some major towns that uh, on the outskirts of DC. And uh, it, it would be, it, it will be interesting to see how um, so many lawmakers, policy influencers, there's 150 plus embassies in DC, how these stakeholders who are influencing both domestic and international policy start to react when dispensaries start opening in, in their communities. It's uh, adult use dispensaries start opening in their communities. I think for a lot of stakeholders, this has been an abstract conversation. Um, and uh, the, the opening of a regulated market in Virginia, I think is going to be um, yeah, could, could challenge kind of uh, some longstanding assumptions or misconceptions about what the, a regulated cannabis economy could look like. And then finally, maybe just one macro point, which uh, we're, we're watching quite closely because we think this could be one of the things that uh, could potentially consequentially impact the trajectory of the market this year, which is the broader economic conditions. Um, we're we're in a stage of growth where um, uh, this industry is uh, expansion is very very capital intensive, 
Um, and uh, the, the dynamic we're, we're watching out for is whether um, broader economic headwinds end up resulting in a constriction to the amount of capital flowing into cannabis. And therefore, even though we continue to see very strong consumer demand, consumer demand has proven to be very, very resilient. Um, but whether that actually slows the expansion of an industry because business is having more trouble raising capital to expand, to acquire, to scale, uh, to innovate, um, it doesn't kind of it doesn't um, uh, diminish the long-term opportunity of the market. It may just slow the pace of uh, pace of growth that we've been seeing um, if capital constraints become a key uh, a big issue as we go into the year ahead. Thank you for that. Well, moving on, uh, seattletimes.com reported what to expect for cannabis in 2022. So as we've discussed, there's a lot to be excited about, but a few things to be concerned about. Um, Deborah, you have extensively covered cannabis financial markets. What's your outlook for cannabis capital markets in 2022? I kind of uh, agree with John in, in a way. I, I think that a lot of the big money deals that we saw last year and even the year before, I, I don't think we're going to see as many of those. I feel like the SPACs have maybe run their course. Um, the SPACs were all these, these massive, like 100 million, 200 million, and they just didn't have really the companies to go after. Um, and they've, in my opinion, uh, kind of overinflated the values of some of the companies that were seen as qualifying transactions. Uh, because they just didn't have a lot to choose from. So they went, oh, we'll take company A over here. And then you would look at it and go, well, company A only has this much in revenue. And wait, you're you're buying them for how much? Yeah. Like it wasn't making any sense. And then the, the secondary market for those SPAC shares is awful. And so you you start to get into a situation like like we see with um, like say the parent company where, where it's just, you know, $500 million charge. Um, I, I just... My gut is we're not going to see as many of those big honking deals that we saw. Also, the stocks have really been in a terrible bear market for almost two years now. We've had a quarter here or there where things turned around, but overall, the, the valuations have just been squashed. So for you know the investor, it feels like you're throwing bad money um, after good or good money after bad. Um, I, I think that that appetite is starting to wane. Uh, so I think it's actually going to be a lot harder uh, to raise money, maybe not on a smaller scale. Um, I just saw that Garden Society did a Series A, uh, raised $7 million. I think that's so great. Great company, great uh, female-led company. So maybe we'll see more of those smaller deals where the investors are hoping to find that next brand that's going to really resonate and could go um, national if you know as, as national as you can go on on cannabis but but be more of a multi-state brand got it john anything to add to that yeah just um you know we, we've seen that the the stock um the stock market has been uh, very news driven there's a lot of retail investors who will see a headline and and, and rush to buy at least that's the way it used to play uh and there just hasn't been a lot of good news um, uh, particularly anchored around kind of this federal story. You know, I think that, that helped yeah. buoy uh, prices um, in, in uh, 2020 coming into 2021. But once it became clear that, that the federal story wasn't going to be happening, um, uh, the, the, yeah, the, 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 it will take 
some significant developments we think um, to to drive those prices back up to what we were seeing uh, a few years ago. Not not ruling it out, but it's it's hard to see from where we're starting off this year um, the sort of catalytic event that would lead to the burst of enthusiasm. Uh, in some cases, irrational enthusiasm, uh, but the burst of enthusiasm that we've seen in past um, past year cycles of this market. Right. And maybe well, I put that question to Deborah. Uh, you know, do you see a catalytic event um, that that could lead to a turnaround for the broad market as opposed to individual companies? Ah, uh, you know, um, that's a tough one because you know we've seen the provinces in Alberta and Ontario um, issue so many licenses that a lot of the companies in those provinces in Canada have had declining sequential sales. So that was not a good, uh, as you point out, not a good headline. Um, and then we have seen, like, uh, we were talking about Michigan being such a great state, but if you start to look at Michigan sales, they've also started to kind of plateau and, and even tip a little uh, to the downside. Uh, so I feel like, you know, I hate thought, I don't think legislation-wise, I, I, I personally don't see that anything's going to happen this year on legislation. I feel like if we would have seen it, we would have seen it. Um, I could be wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong on that. Um, I'm not a political reporter, uh, but I haven't heard of any positive comments around that area. So I, I kind of feel like it starts to, uh, you know, I hate to say it, kind of point back to Jersey, and only because Jersey is close to New York, and so you've got all this media and I feel like that's going to be the impetus. Um, we did get good numbers from Tilray this week, which helped tremendously. And um, I felt like that when Organogram had a great quarter. So hopefully if we start to see some of these companies coming out with a good solid quarter, we'll be able to get past some of the, the bad headlines. We've had several companies teeter on bankruptcy. Um, that hasn't helped either. Um, I've heard a lot of rumblings about hedge funds in Canada, you know, shorting a lot of the stocks, which can't be proved or, or, or really addressed. Um, so I, I feel like if, if anything is going to be the positive catalyst, that it's going to be Jersey. No pressure on the New Jersey market. <laughs> the entire industry out of its doldrums. All on Jersey shoulders. <laughs> all on the Garden State. We're all going to go there so we can have them pump gas in our cars so we don't have to get out of the car. <laughs> Isn't that the saying? Jersey strong? So they got to be strong. They got to. And, and that's for the audience. If nobody, if, if people out in the audience that are listening to this, if you've ever been to New Jersey, it is unlike any state when you pull up into the gas station because they still have gas station attendants that pump yep. the gas in your car. You do not get out of your car. And it's, 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 it's a time, it's, it's a step back in time. That's a beautiful thing. I think all states should go back to having gas station attendants. <laughs> well, unless you're at some place where they're like, lady, get back in your car. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's not quite the step back in time. <laughs> right. Um, well, moving on. So, Looking at European markets, um, American operators, investors have largely ignored the European markets, which have been pretty slow to launch and optim um, operationalize. What impact do you think Germany's announcement that the country will legalize adult use will have on how American st stakeholders start viewing international markets? You know, um, I, I've seen a lot of talk about uh, Germany being a $5 billion market, that it's going to be this huge market, um, that 
Germany is going to kick everything off for Europe. Um, I guess I'm a lot less positive about that. You know, uh, Germany has had legal medical marijuana since 2017. It's not been huge. It's not been a big adoption. Um, every time I see these big numbers, it's all like big numbers around forecasts and not big numbers in actuality. And I was looking at um, 2019, so pre-pandemic, 2019, total Europe was sales were $250 million. Total Europe, that's like that's like one quarter for <laughs> green thumb industries. And um, the US did 12.1 billion. Now granted the US is, you've got a lot of rec sales in there. Um, but the, the, the European market still has a lot of stigma. I mean, they've had CBD there for, for years and they're still, that market still hasn't even bought a bunch of CBD because they're freaked out and think CBD is going to get them high. I mean, there's so much misinformation. I, I don't, I just don't see that the numbers are going to be all that big and and I think that's why a lot of the American companies, when they took a look at it, backed away from it because it was going to be a huge investment and the payoff wasn't really going to be there. It may not be there for many years. And then you've also got the situation in Europe that almost is similar to the United States in, in that each country has its own set of rules and regs. It's not going to be like the EU where they're all going to have one standard for cannabis. Each right. country is going to be different with the packaging and the rules and it, it's going to be, if you thought the United States was hard to navigate for cannabis, I, I think the Europe is just going to be even harder. Having said that, to me, the promise is in Eastern Europe. I think Eastern Europe, you'll see um, much more adoption of cannabis companies because you're going to be able to give people jobs. You have a lot of depressed areas that you can uh, refurbish and, and restore for cannabis facilities, um, you've got a cheap labor force. So I feel like we're probably gonna see more happening in Eastern Europe as far as cannabis growth, just because of that, because it gives them jobs and it helps depress locations. Um, that's kind of what we saw in the United States when, when we saw like Colorado and um, you know Washington and Oregon, those cities, where they first started putting dispensaries were always in the, the crummy parts of town. They were always in the uh, rundown industrial areas and that's who started it. And that's where they things got started. I, I guess I feel like to me, that's where we really see the growth in Europe is Eastern Europe. I just don't think that the numbers are gonna be all that huge in Germany. Right, John, what do you think about those numbers for Germany? Or why do you think that they are projected to be where they are? So, so I think there's a couple of dimensions to the German story that we find really compelling uh, in the outlook. So one is that the fact that this was an announcement made by a newly elected coalition government relatively soon after the election. So this was an announcement that was made in December. The election was in late September. I, I don't think anyone really expected this to be one of the new government's priorities. <laughs> um, and, and so it makes us wonder whether you know, the, the, there's some intention here to move quite quickly to do this. Um, the question is, what does this end up ultimately looking like? What is the regulatory structure that's going to be proposed uh, look like? 
So, so I, I think the fact that it does look at least from, from early indications that there's some intention to move uh, robustly around this, clearly the German public is, is behind this, given that um, you know, four of the five parties that were vying for uh, the Bundestag in, in, in September um, had included in their policy proposals drug policy reform. Um, I think there's been this kind of co uh, coalescing around this idea that it was time for this to happen in Germany. Uh, the nature and form, uh, ultimate form of the regulated market, I think, is the wild card question, and that's going to dictate what the revenue opportunity looks like. But there does seem to be a, some um, intentionality around from the administra administrative state. Um, second, you know, I, I would not underestimate, or at least we think that there's something to be said for the gravitational pull of Germany as Europe's largest economy, uh, as Europe's most influential economy. Um, and for some of these neighbors where there have been quiet conversations happening in Italy, in France, in Spain, uh, in Portugal to, to move toward a regulated market, I think this animates that conversation. Other countries may not necessarily follow suit in, in the same way or do so quickly. Um, but we, we, based on some of the conversations we've already had this year, it does appear that it is stimulating a conversation around, you know, now that Germany has done this, what does this mean for our own uh, country? Totally agree with Deborah's point that the, the German medical market has languished for, for years and, and there's been some significant operational challenges there. And um, for the stakeholders who got started there early, it's been a tough slog. Um, recouping the investments from that market have, has been really, really challenging. Um, the, the, I have to assume that they are quite kind of excited about the potential of being able to translate and capture some of the adult use market, uh, much like we're seeing in New Jersey or we saw in markets like Illinois, where the medical market was uh, a really tough place to, to do business. But if you survived and made it out of that, then when the switch got flipped, you actually in a really strong position because you trimmed the fat, you'd learned how to operate lean, um, you'd figured out a, a product mix that may have been small, but that was well suited for your audiences. Uh, and so I think that's part of the reason why we've seen such strong performance in this in these markets is these operators um, who survived that long dry spell um, were were really well framed now for um, to, to capitalize on the on the very substantial opportunity on the rec side. And and then when you think about it too, the the argument of oh well if Germany legalizes that's going to you know set off this chain reaction in Europe. I mean when you think about it, Amsterdam's been legal for decades. <laughs> They've never started some chain reaction over Europe and with Amsterdam having legal cannabis and having had it for, I mean, I remember when I was 15, I was in Amsterdam and I saw little tugboats with plants all over it. And, and I don't want to say all of them, but that was a long time ago. So <laughs> it's been that it, 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 Amsterdam didn't exactly, you know, start a domino effect in the country. So Fair, but but also don't think anyone looked at Amsterdam and thought we would want this in our communities. Like I, I don't think. The, the so that's the question: Is are they going to look at Germany and go, "Yes, yeah, so I want this"? Because Czech Republic also has had um, legal, some kind of legal cannabis. I mean, I, I was there a few years ago and and saw it. And, and I think the point you make is an important one, which is in the North American markets, our reflex has been to make this a capital-driven kind of revenue model. Like it's, we, we have built this as capitalistic uh, um, cannabis economies. Uh, I think that's gonna get tested in, in, in Europe. I think we're going to see first the real challenges to, to whether to make this a, a 
stark for-profit market or whether uh, there are ways to do this through the social club model, through the um, kind of uh, community-based model, the, the co-op model. Um, I think there's going to be much more kind of consideration of that, partly because the dynamics that are shaping the legalization conversation in those in, in those countries is quite different than some of the dynamics that influence legalization in North America. So, so um, the opportunity could could end up being uh, could ultimately end up looking quite different. Um, uh, and you know, I think entrepreneurs will find ways to capitalize on the gray spaces. I think the markets that go home grow as a primary source will will you know you'll see homegrown supplies uh, take off. Um, but I, I would not necessarily assume that. Um, uh, Germany or the rest of the European market is going to end up looking like the MedRec model that we've seen uh, in, in the US states or in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would expect that there's going to be some, some countries that decide to go for uh, a less capital-based model and one that, uh, say, looks more community-based transaction, kind of uh, more cooperative-based uh, cultivation and, 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 and product sharing. Um, but it's certainly, certainly going to be something uh, to watch. I think it's going to be an interesting season uh, over the next couple of years as these countries figure out what their potential approaches might be. Well, John, I know you and I spoke about this and with uh, Mitch as well, just about the normalization before legalization, especially in the U.S. And, you know, Deborah, as you said, you know, when you were there 15, it was probably still very taboo around the world, right? Like it just, it was very... Um, not as normalized. Do you think that Europe will experience that normalization, that they may want that in their country? I know you're saying, do they really want to have that in their country like Amsterdam has had for years? Yeah, you know, and it may be that um, when dispensaries start to open, like the modern dispensary, like what we see yeah. now when we go to California or Colorado or wherever, um, it, it is very um, enticing to, to go to these stores and to, to make purchases. And that could very well be what it takes to normalize it, um, to get it oh. out of that, that stigmatization, which is definitely where it is. Yeah. Um, having said that, I feel like in the US, um, while there, um, there was some stigma, there was such a huge illicit market that in a way it was normalized. Um, well, but I mean, you're talking about like, kind of like a seedy drug interact, like drug deal, as opposed to going to like Planet 13, where it's like sophisticated glass cases and you can get a cup of coffee. <laughs> right, right. But I, I guess that's what I say when normalization in the sense of, yeah. I don't think anybody has ever had a problem buying weed in America. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. That's what I, I guess where I'm going with that is, yeah. is if you wanted to buy it, it was certainly fairly easy to find it. Um, did you know what you were buying? No, you just bought what you bought. Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, you had to usually sit at someone's random house on their random couch and, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that that could potentially change things. I mean, certainly with Amsterdam, you had to go to a cafe. You could only consume it in that cafe. It was very limited, um, uh, uh, amount of options. Uh, yes, to your point, now you go into any dispensary and you've got loads of choices and beautiful packaging and, and lots of options. It's it's a lot of fun and it makes it a whole lot less scary. Yeah. So if you're going in and well you buy a chocolate covered <laughs> strawberry that's infused, mm, yummy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or even like a honey for your tea. It's so sophisticated. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 it, you know, and even here we've seen we've had a lot of education around just like CBD, and we're still in the education mode on CBD. So I think that yeah, there's just going to be a, a big learning curve in those countries, right? Well, we have taken up a lot of your time, but um, before you go, we do like our guests to give a shout out to someone in the industry. If you have someone in mind that you want to give some props to. You know, I want to give props to Rosie Matteo and Matteo Communications. I think they've done an amazing job. Um, I, you know, I've known Rosie, well, since I started Green Market Report in 2017, and she was a one woman shop back then. She now has something like 60 employees. And I just love the fact that it's a female-owned company and that it's done a lot to promote a positive message for cannabis companies and uh, and the cannabis industry as a whole. So I, I guess that's my shout out. <laughs> All right. Well, go Rosie. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for your time, Deborah. We really appreciate you joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us at Canna Week. Please be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. If you really like us, leave us a five-star review. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. We're excited to be back and we will see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.